Hello, I'm Jim Irvin, and this is Here's One I Made Earlier, a conversation with the creators of some much-loved works of music. And this is one of our Producers Cut episodes, where instead of talking to an artist or songwriter, we're meeting a producer. My guest today, Mick Glossop, has been engineering and producing records since the 1970s, and therefore, if nothing else, knows a thing or two about adapting to changing tastes. He's recorded prog rock and punk, new romantics and Irish soul, heavy metal and acoustic folk, mostly in the UK and Ireland, but also as far afield as Iceland, Australia, South Korea and Uzbekistan. His extraordinary discography includes records by Tangerine Dream, Kevin Coyne, The Skids, Frank Zappa, UFO, Randy California, The Waterboys, Lloyd Cole, The Wonder Stuff, and an incredible 17 albums with Van Morrison. That last fact alone says something about his diplomatic skills in the studio, though he has a reputation for being explosive around assistant engineers who aren't paying attention. Otherwise, he's known as providing a relaxed guiding hand on projects, something he needed, full disclosure, when he produced a record that I sang on, Furniture's Brilliant Mind, and our subsequent album, The Wrong People, which I'm sure was like two weeks of herding cats for him. Well, that was away back in 1986, but in today's conversation, we'll be going slightly further back and hanging around in the summer of 1979, when Mick produced a record regarded as a late-breaking punk classic, The Crack, the fiery debut and sadly only full album recorded by the original lineup of West London band, The Ruts. You'll burn the street You'll burn your houses With anxiety Welcome along, Mick. Hi. There are very few people who've been recording or producing pop records for as long as you. What uh, special qualities do you need to survive almost 50 years in something as notoriously volatile as the music business? <laughs> That's quite an open-ended question, actually. I suppose, I mean, personally, you need a lot of patience, but you also need a lot of determination. As anyone who's um, trying to get somewhere and stay somewhere in the music industry, you need to be determined. Um, you need to be a huge fan of music, of course, it goes without saying. Diplomacy is a big thing, certainly, as you mentioned. Choosing the people you work with is a huge factor. Um, you need to have some hits every now and again. I've been lucky enough to have maybe two or three peaks, I suppose, along the way, but long periods of the opposite of peaks, troughs, I suppose they are, <laughs> um, where, you, where you might be working, but you're not, you're not producing hits. You're not, you don't have a profile at the time, as, as it's a phrase we sort of use. And so you're not the first person that gets called. That can ha you can have had three or four years of that on the go. But I suppose when you've been doing it for a while, then like the record we're talking about today, may 
there may be people who've heard that recently and want the guy to <laughs> produce something for them. Does that sort of thing happen? Does people that, come around that, again? It does happen, um, but not all the time. The, the, the time difference, time distance makes a difference. I mean, this is 1979. I mean, the Ruts were highly respected as well as successful band, but I don't know whether that would have a similar resonance today outside of what might be termed nostalgia. Yeah. And that, and that doesn't really help you that much, I don't think. How old were you when music first made an, an impact upon you? At home, we, there wasn't a lot of music around, a few records. My sister played piano. I sang in a choir when I used to go to church, and we were both in a folk club, and I was in bands at school. But there wasn't, there wasn't a musical background that produced that. Um, but I remember my mum having um, the old Perry Como record or something. So that was the first time I was aware of records but I would have been about seven or something but but I remember when I was 14 the Beatles had become famous and I just suddenly realized there was this there were lots and lots of people and they were into this thing called pop music and a sense that there was something going on and um, there was a monthly pop magazine you could get called believe it or not pop monthly I think <laughs> so, so that 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 drew me into that sense of there being lots of fans and also lots and lots of bands and, and, and artists. And that happened quite suddenly, it, within a week, you know, I discovered that. Um, so where, where was this? Where were you brought up? I was brought up pretty much from the age of about uh, seven in Birkenhead, which is across the Mersey from Liverpool. So it's, it's Merseyside, but it's not Liverpool, unfortunately. So you were right in the thick of it then when the Beatles were, were taking off. You, you were aware of it going on over there. Yes. Well, I mean, they, they'd already taken off by then, and so they'd left. Yes. They were, back, they were in London by then. But, but we, the cavern was still going, the, cavern, the original cavern club, which was in this sweaty warehouse cellar, which would have never been opened today. No health and safety whatsoever. No. It, was, it was incredibly crude, but it was, it was amazingly exciting going to that place. Seeing bands, and I, I went to see bands like the Kinks and the Yardbirds at that sort of age. I was about sixteen, I suppose. I I remember going to lunchtime sessions actually because we uh, okay. we had a, we, we were supposed to do sports on a Wednesday afternoon, so lessons finished at twelve, and we disappear, and we get on. There's an underground train, sort of mini tube system, going between Birkenhead between the Wirral and Liverpool, so we jump on, get changed into our black polo neck sweaters, and anoraks and queue up for these lunchtime sessions, 12 till about 2.30, two bands. So you go, you go and see a band like The Kinks for, like, I don't know, a very small amount of money. Actually, they used to do all-nighters as well, so they'd throw everybody out at 11, and you'd have to queue up again in the freezing cold <laughs> <laughs> till, like, midnight when they let you in for the, for the all-nighter. And I saw the, saw the Drifters, the original Drifters, at one of those gigs. There'd be five or six acts on till about... 5.36 in the morning, so you'd see lots of Liverpool bands, like The Undertakers, the Clayton Squares, there were lots of, uh, lots of Liverpool bands, which were all, well, most of the ones we saw were great, they were kind of classic beat bands, which were playing Liverpool versions of Motown songs and that sort of thing. I've heard it was literally at the dump. Oh, yeah. Oh, fantastic, though. I mean, it was just... It was raw, the, the lowest floor of a warehouse. So there were six stories or thereabouts above, which where they would stack stuff. It was the bottom of that. You went down this very steep stone staircase, and you, it always took ages to get down there. 
And I remember the smell was like this, you know, it's a cellar, so it smelled damp like a cellar. There was no bar, they used to sell beef broth, so you could smell that, <laughs> believe it or not. And the only thing you get to drink was Coca-Cola. As you got down the steps, you, you could you could gradually start to hear the sound of the band who were playing at the time. The smell of mould and bovril. <laughs> and the toilets, presumably. Yeah, I know, it's amazing. But, I mean, sweat was literally dripping off the ceiling. When we used to come out at 2.30 in the afternoon into the bright sunlight, we'd walk down Matthew Street, turn around the corner and go into the most well-known band music shop in Liverpool, which was um, run by a guy called Frank Hesse. Frank Hesse's music store. And you'd go in there basically to never buy anything because we didn't have any money. So you go in there to look at the guitars on the wall and play and stuff. You know? But eventually I got 15 quid, I think, to, to buy a bass. Yeah, what about buying records and stuff? How did you consume music at that point? Bought singles because they were cheaper than albums. Got albums for Christmas. Yeah, same. <laughs> uh, but I, I, I think, I've, yeah, I bought a couple of Beatles EPs and Rolling Stones. A lot of people were putting out EPs. The Stones put out about three or four EPs, I seem to remember. Were you paying close attention to the sound of those things? Is that something you were immediately attracted to? What was the, uh, what was the bridge into production and, and, or joining a studio? So I went to university to do electronics. It was during that first year that I realised that I didn't want to do that as a career. I wanted to do something more creative, but I had no idea what that was going to be. I went to university college where the Slade is, and I used to hang out with art students and, and people in the psychology department because they were just more, more interesting than the engineers who were on the same course <laughs> as me. So I didn't do much work, and so I, I dropped out after a year. This is 1969. So I spent a year bumming around trying to decide what I was going to do, and I thought, well, there must be somewhere I can combine technical stuff and artistic stuff. And I applied to the BBC for a job, and I also wrote lots of letters to recording studios asking for a job, which everybody does. I wrote about 50 letters and heard from about three of them. Because I'd mentioned that I was, I'd studied electronics, I got a call back from Wessex Studios, and they wanted, they were looking for an assistant maintenance engineer. So I thought, well, this is a way into a studio. Um, so that's how I got in. And one day the assistant engineer was ill on a session, so I was because I knew how to operate the machines because I had to maintain them. That was my first involvement in a recording session. Um, Can you remember what that session was? Um, I mean, certainly one of the early ones was the Tony McCauley session that I referred to when I mentioned the, your your um, previous program on Twitter. Because yes. I was a tape-up on one of his sessions, and I, I remember being impressed by what he was doing. It was, I think the artist was Kiki D, actually. So it was around that time, and I know he was in and out doing various things with, with those sort of artist bands like the Foundations. And what was impressive about him? What was he doing that was memorable? He was very confident, very driven, very focused. Also, he was talking about aspects of the record. He was talking about aspects of the record which weren't just musicians playing or singers singing there was something it was he was talking about the sound the way it was put together that extended beyond notes being played or sung. sound the sound of i knew what a recording engineer did did in terms of turning knobs and pushing faders and placing microphones but i didn't really know what the intentions were and what 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 an engineer was attempting to achieve with that until until later on but i was picking this up at the time from people like, well, producers like Tony McCauley and lots of other people who, who came in um, and being influenced by that, which is what was so great about that time. 
which you don't get the opportunity now. I mean, people, people spend lots of money going to college to try and learn what we were learning in probably a tenth of the time by being immediately immersed in the process mm. and seeing talented people do what they do and picking it up and going, I'm going to do that. When I get to sit in that chair, I'm going to do that when that, <laughs> when that happens. You, know, you just make mental notes 20 times a day um, on those great sessions. You know? So, uh, so that, was, that was an example of the sort of effect he had. I mean, you can tell from that interview with him that he's still got that energy. Tremendous energy, yeah. Mm, yeah. It's amazing. For many years, you were a staff engineer and producer for Virgin Records. How did you become involved with them? So that started in 74 when the technical director of the manor, Virgin Studios up in Oxfordshire, Philip Newell, just called me up and said, we need an engineer at the manor. Do you want a job? So it was one of those, how can I turn this down sort of thing. So that was 1974. And I, I worked with Virgin as staff engineer till late 79, maybe 1980. I can't quite remember why Virgin had a studio in a manor house before they <laughs> made any records. How did that <laughs> well, come about? To the best of my knowledge, the history is that Richard bought the manor, which is a, it's a very old stone, Cotswold stone manor house, eight bedrooms in 50 acres of grounds north of Oxford. Very rural, very nice. And presumably cost next to nothing in those days. £25,000, I was told. Wow. In, in 1968 or something. Right. So, and he was living there. The, the original manor, which existed until about 75, when we refurbished the whole thing, was, was pretty basic. And lots of artists, lots of big artists, went to record at the manor in those early 70s days. But it's my impression that they only went there once. Because <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> it, the, the house itself was great and the staff were fabulous. You're really well looked after. And it was a very nice vibe as well. But technically it was a bit limited. Phil, Philip Newell definitely wanted to upgrade the studio. And I think Richard was quite interested in the idea of, of having a, a world-class facility. So, so Philip and I spent a year designing that and specking everything and Richard Branson himself wasn't especially interested in pop music was he I gather was he around he was he was in and out I mean he'd moved to London by then you know they'd set up the label but I mean the the creative force direction of the label was was Simon Draper who apparently was Richard's second cousin although they hadn't met I mean Simon's South African yeah came over to the UK and um, and hooked up with Richard because he wanted a job for a while, and uh, he ended up running the label, running the label, <laughs> creating the label, really. Yeah. You know, and in in terms of the development of Virgin Records' label, and then Simon and Jumbo Van Rennen are they're the creative force. So I mean, Richard was sort of interested in music, but only sort of, you know, not in the way that. Simon was. As a staffer then, is it like a taxi rank? Do you just sit there and record whoever comes through the door? Yes. <clears throat> that, was the, that was the format really for most studios still until probably the late 70s in that most studios in London and around the country would have their own staff engineers and assistants. There were very few freelancers. An artist or a company would choose a studio for various reasons, but quite often they'd choose to work in the studio because the engineer in that studio 
had a particular talent that they liked. So the manor was like that too, and I was the, the staff engineer who would, yeah, work on whatever came through the door. What kind of projects were you working on in those early days then, when you first opened the, the freshly appointed manor? Oh, one of the things was I think that most bands were supposed to record at the manor or at the townhouse, which was the, the studio in London that we developed later in 1978. So, um, so I worked with a lot of virgin artists as a result of that. So Tangerine Dream, Kevin Coyne, David Bedford. I worked on an interesting project with David Bedford, who was an arranger, composer, based on the, the, the poem, The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, with a narration by uh, Robert Powell, the actor Robert Powell. <laughs> now, of course, Virgin at that point, uh, with its sort of Notting Hill connections and, and, and things, had a reputation for, for being largely populated by hippies, didn't it? Oh, did you it was... connect with that, or did you consider yourself among that group? I considered myself part of what we'd call the counterculture, something separate from the mainstream and in reaction to the mainstream. Yeah, I felt that's how I identified myself. And there seemed to be a lot of people who dressed like that with long hair who worked at Virgin. I think being in the music business, there were probably other labels where Ireland probably had lots of people like that. Yeah. Well, Ireland Records. But certainly, yeah, there was... That was I mean, I think this was also amplified by the choice of artists. That they... Well, that's what I was coming on to, is the, oh, ros okay, the roster sure. was, you know, Gong and Henry Cow and, and all these things who were either living on a commune somewhere or sort of radically uh, left-wing, weren't they? <laughs> or a tremendous yeah. sort of raggle-taggle bunch of people. And you got this impression as, a, as an outsider, as a listener, that this was all happening in some, yes, bucolic environment and, and, and everyone was well, sharing exactly. um, yeah. muesli and lentils and... Uh, and then making records. Yeah. Was, was, it, was there any truth to that at all? Or? It was certainly alternative. Yeah. A lot of imagination, a lot of people wanting to do interesting original things. I mean, that was, that was a characteristic, really, of, of everything they signed up until the Sex Pistols, really. The, the, the one thing that seemed to um, connect all the acts, they were, there was a certain amount of eccentricity, wasn't there? I mean, you know, somebody like Absolutely, Kevin Coyne yeah, and, yeah. and Hatfield in the North, yeah. they were full of eccentric artistic decisions, weren't they? In, in all those cases, it was a search for originality. They were really original artists doing uh, stuff that no one else was doing, yeah. Then just a sort of couple of years later, um, Richard goes out of his way to go after the Sex Pistols. So was there a really yeah. discernible sea change in the, in the atmosphere of the, the label after that point? There was a sea change in, in music and culture all over the, mm. the country. I mean, they, you know, they, they signed to EMI and they fell out. Too difficult. Too you, know, you can imagine. You know, that's the stuff that attracts Richard. It's like, yeah, yeah, we've got to have them. They're fantastic. They're, they're so original. And, and, and yeah, in terms of PR and promotion, it's a, it's a, a gift when you're dealing with that kind of behaviour. They were a really good band. And I saw the Screen on the Green Islington show and I was kind of sceptical about, about punk uh, initially, but I was really impressed with their, just their playing ability. Yeah, good chops, sounded very tight. Paul Cook was a, was a really good drummer. And I mean, I'd say that about probably, probably three or four bands, The Ruts, The Skids, Stranglers and The Clash, stood out from all the other punk bands at being damn good at from a musical point of view whereas there were a lot of punk bands who who weren't that competent and that's fine that's okay i mean it was it was about energy and devotion and enthusiasm and passion
The Ruts came together in West London in late 1977, establishing themselves in the Hayes, Southall and Ealing area and recording a single in a rut for the People Unite label run by local reggae stars Misty and Roots, uh, which came out in January 1979 and led to sessions for John Peel and a tour supporting The Damned. They signed to Virgin soon after and their debut for the label, Babylon's Burning, was released in June 1979 and climbed the charts while they were making their debut album, The Crack, produced by Mick at the Townhouse Studios in Shepherd's Bush. Babylon's Burning peaked at number 7, something that I said followed in August, and the album in September, peaking at number 16. Fourth single, West One, followed early in 1980, but shortly afterwards the band fired singer Malcolm Owen over his escalating heroin use. Promising to kick the habit, Malcolm was rehired before making final singles staring at the Rude Boys. But while staying at his parents' house, supposedly getting clean, Owen overdosed from heroin on July the 14th, 1980, aged just 26. How did you first hear about the Ruts? When did they first sort of loom into view? Um, I must have got a call from, from Simon, I guess, about working with them. That was, yeah, it was, it was via the label. They were around for quite a while before they got the deal. Was there a sense in which they were actually slightly out of time? It was 79 by the time they signed to Virgin, wasn't it? That's right. Um, it's perhaps easy to think that when punk happened, like within a space of six months, there were maybe a hundred punk bands that all emerged yeah. at the same time. You know, lots of bands had been around for a while. The Ruts certainly played like they'd been playing together for a while. They were really tight. Malcolm was a, an accomplished frontman. I mean, he had natural charm and persona anyway, but he was very comfortable being on stage and he did what he did extremely well. I mean, when we recorded the album, most of his vocals well, one or two of them were live, but most of them, apart from that, were like one take. He just got in front of the mic and did it. And it was just, it was great. And they were all, they were great players. I, really. I would actually say that Malcolm was the best punk singer of all mm. time. Yeah, yeah, I, I sure. think his voice was extraordinary. Apart from anything else, it, it's perfect for records. It sort of leaps out of a mix, doesn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely. Fantastic yeah. three-dimensional voice. How did you record it? What did you do with him? I tended to record singers who have quite, shall we say, potentially loud, spiky voices that can take a toll on a, on a microphone. You don't want to use a very sensitive mic because the microphone's likely to distort at the wrong time. So under those circumstances, I'd use a dynamic mic because dynamic mics are less likely to complain about that sort of, I mean, to deal with that sort of singer. So it probably would have been, you know, a Shaw or a Sennheiser MD 421, something like that. So when you're told about the band has been signed and you're asked to work with them, how do you kind of prepare for a job like that? If, if I did what I normally do, then I would have heard a demo and I would have then gone to see them live and then met them and talked about stuff to see if we were going to get on. And then we'd go and spend some time in a rehearsal room if, if anything needs looking at from a musical arrangement point of view, if any of the songs are maybe a bit too long or they need a new section put again, then I prefer to do that sort of preparation work outside of the confines of an expensive studio. Work with them in a room, experiment with a few ideas, and it's a very valuable period because you get to know people before you're actually under the spotlight, as it were. So 
Well, actually, I don't think we did that with the ruts. I think we just straight, went straight in the studio. <laughs> really? It's a long time ago, but I can't really remember the details. Well, I mean, I, I certainly remember doing that, that with you. And what impressed me about that was your attention to the transitions in songs, the verses into the choruses. Are, the, are all the nuts and bolts mm -hmm. good? Are the, are, are the joints attractive? That yeah. was, there was a lot of looking at that kind of thing, wasn't there? Well, that's, that's, that's the time. That's the opportunity you have to, to interfere with the music yes. <laughs> in that sense. I like to use that expression. What does a producer do? He interferes with other people's music. Or she, yeah. she introduces. Yeah, um, I tended to go into a session already having formed a kind of an 80% clear idea of the way I thought the record should sound. The recording studio was the place where that was realised. And the 20% is time for experimentation and adjustment and all of that. You know? So I, I always like to be in a prepared state. So that rehearsal period is quite important for me to, to establish things that, that uh, it's worth looking at. Now, I suppose one advantage of them being slightly more experienced, it had been a while before they were signed, is, is that they did have some sense of their own sound. But a lot of bands, I should imagine, from that period had no idea what they were doing, really, did they? Yeah. yeah so yeah. Uh, did they know how to get their sound? Did, or did you uncover new things for them, you know, like with new amps and all that kind of stuff? It, no, they knew how to get their sound. Yeah. I mean, um, Dave Ruffey's a very good drummer, knows how to tune the kit, knows how to hit it, plays in time with loads of energy and consistency. I didn't really have to say much to Dave. Um, Seggs, again, the bass player, did the job extremely well. Paul Fox was a fantastic guitarist, the, very creative. His sound was amazing. He played an SG, and I think he played a, a Les Paul as well, but he used a, a fairly standard Marshall 100-watt amp, 4x12 speakers, and the only pedal he used was the flange pedal, Electric Mistress, which, which is, features heavily on Babylon's Burning. He got his sound because he played the guitar a certain way with a certain attitude, it had certain types of strings, it went into the amp, the amp was set a certain way, and it came out of the speaker. So I was gathering that sound. I didn't have to work on that, that guitar sound at all. I just had to make sure it was reproduced. One thing I remember that I did do a lot of was double tracking the guitar, I think, virtually. Because Paul was a classic rhythm lead player. Most of what he did with the ruts was, was playing chords and rhythm parts, but with melodic ideas thrown in as well and we doubled virtually everything on the album all the guitar parts and it's something that worked really well with Paul because he was very good at playing consistently they they record the track as a band then we double he'd play the guitar part again on, on a, a new set of tracks and he would play it exactly the same way so it fitted perfectly with the original it didn't sound like two guitars it sounded like one big guitar or bigger guitar that's probably one of my biggest contributions, actually, I think, because really they had their arrangements and the songs are all there. And, um, Did you, you know, do the single versions of, of Babylon's Burning and something that I said as well? Because I gather, they, didn't they re-record them for the album or was that, did no, I get that wrong? they were the same. I, I've got a feeling we might have remixed Babylon's Burning because it's the first track on the album and it starts with an alarm bell and a police siren. I don't yep. think that was on the single. No, I don't think it was. I think, I think we... And it, we might have just put that on top of this, the original mix. I honestly can't remember. Right. But everything else was, there weren't any different versions, just as it was. There were some 12-inch mixes. I mean, there's a, there's a nice 12-inch mix of Jar Wars. There's a kind of 30-second section at the end of the song where they sort of reggae it up more. And for the 12-inch mix, 
I remember mixing that section about 20 times, doing different things, and then stitching them all together to create this long period. But it's basically them playing the same stuff over and over. What was your personal dub experience up to that point? Did you have to learn any techniques for, that, for the dub element of what they were doing? Not really. I mean, I, I was into reggae as well, and so I, I knew what dub was. But the tools are fairly simple. I mean, there's tape echo, reverb, and then selective use of different instruments. Instead of having all those instruments playing all the time, you switch some of them in and out, and you maybe bring in the voice for one phrase and add lots of repeating echoes to it, so it sw swirls into the distance, and then you switch it off again. And then you do something similar with the bass and feature that as an instrument, turn everything else off and solo the bass, and then bring the band back in. So, you know, that's, that's basically it. You just do that until it sounds interesting and then use the good bits. You know? <laughs> I think that's what King Tubby used to do. That's from yeah. what I've heard. You know, that's, I didn't do anything radically new. Because this was recorded quite late in the sort of scheme of punk, were they already thinking about stretching the formula? I mean, obviously there's the, the reggae element to the record and the, and the dub side of it, but there's some other experiments on the album too. And Was that a conscious thing? Were they talking about pulling away from the short, sharp impulse of regular punk at all? I don't remember any conversations about their musical direction. They were doing what they did. Yeah. They didn't talk about music in an intellectual sense, you know, sort of what we're aiming to do and we're trying to do this. They just kind of, you know, that was their live, that was their live set, the first album, pretty much. It's the songs they'd been working on for some time. Are you referring to songs like It Was Cold? Yeah, yeah. But yeah, that was, that, they played it live just like that. So it wasn't, it wasn't, they weren't moving anywhere. That was part of their, their set in the same way as the reggae was part of what was essentially a, a kind of a punk rock set. Now you're playing the atomic bomb on It Was Cold, aren't you? <laughs> is what it sounds like. Some <sighs> nuclear device is let off. I can't remember, to be honest. I actually can't remember. It could well have been. It's a synthesizer which you are credited to. Uh, really? Yes. Blimey, I'll have to dig it out. I haven't listened to it for ages. I really like the track. The other thing about uh, It Was Cold, after your entrance on the synth and it all goes bleak, out of that comes a burst of In A Rut. Oh, yeah, that's right. Was that completely re-recorded for, for that, no, or were you using the record? As, that's the record, I think. I'm pretty sure that's the record. But they go down to just vocals at the end, so you must have had, oh, the, you must have had oh. the master tape at some, in some form. Maybe they did re-record it. The only thing I remember is a conversation with them, because it was their idea to, to do that. And it's slightly frustrating, I remember, as a, as a fan at the time, going, why didn't they just put in a rut on the record? <laughs> I don't know, maybe they were thinking it was a, it was a reference to, yeah. to the song or something. But in, in effect, because of that crossfade uh, between your Juster and It Was Cold, and then mm. that happens, it's like a 10-minute medley, really. It's quite, <laughs> it's quite an ambitious sort of stretch of music, that. Veering towards prog. Yeah, or <laughs> heaven forbid, second side of Abbey Road or something. <laughs> in terms of the way they felt about music and punk, in some ways they were more a rock band than they were a punk band. But with the, the, the energy with which they played and with Malcolm's attitude and the, the, the content of the lyrics, they were definitely a punk band. They had that too. They were a rock band and a punk band. How did Human Punk end up on the record then, the live recording? I can't remember. <laughs> that kills sorry. that avenue of inquiry. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Did you do any um, more recording with that lineup afterwards? Did you do subsequent singles and things? Or? Well, they, they, the, the single they did after that was uh, West One, open brackets, Shine On Me, close brackets, which they did with Mike Howlett. Yeah. 
And then I did Stare at the Rude Boys after that. Presumably then there was talk about going in for a second record and all that kind of stuff. So, I'd, I'm not sure if it had got that far when by the time Malcolm died. So yeah, I don't remember conversations about further recordings. Right. How did you hear the news about Malcolm? I can't remember. I mean, it was just through the grapevine, I guess. Somebody, probably via Virgin. And how did that, his death square with the, the guy that you knew? I mean, how aware were you of any problems he was having when you worked with him? Uh, well, those problems had come to light by the time we did Staring at the Rude Boys. During the making of the album, there wasn't any sign at all. I was surprised when I must have heard stories before we did Staring at the Rude Boys that there were some issues. But, I mean, you know, lots of people did drugs, should we say, and whatever flavour that might have been. So if someone says, oh, you know, Malcolm's a bit out of it today or whatever, then, that you know, in musical fraternity, that wouldn't necessarily have been a big surprise. So during the album, there, were, there wasn't any sense that his performance or attitude was compromised in any way. I mean, I, one of the big things I remember about making the record was how much fun it was, because they were really funny guys. And they were always joking the whole time, just it's silly voices and just, it was just tremendous fun. I was just, you know, in fits of laughter at least 50% of the time. There's a fantastic <laughs> video of something that I said that Is there? really good, yeah, which you don't really see good videos from that period. <laughs> and Malcolm is fantastic in it. Yeah, you can just see the kind of humour and the, and the energy in them. Yeah. Yeah, no, it was, it was great. But then when we came to Destroy the Rude Boys, which would have been, I don't know, six months later, I remember being aware that there were issues about, about heroin. The edge had been sort of taken off him a little bit. Mm. And then the B-side of Destroy the Rude Boys, a song called Love in Vain. I remember my, my manager at the time managed another band, uh, a member of which was a heroin addict. When I played him the single, the Roots single, he immediately reacted and said, that's a, that, that's a junkie song. And I hadn't actually clocked it, you know, but uh, he just spotted it straight away from the lyrics. There's an anti-heroin song on the B-side of In a Rut, isn't there? H-Eyes. Do you, know, do you oh, remember yeah, that? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. I gather from the bit of history that I've picked up that he dabbled with it a little bit. Him and Paul lived in a commune in, in Anglesey for, together for a while. Wow. Did you know, did you know that? That rings a bell. That's about all I can say. And... Uh, he'd dabbled a bit back then mm. and by the time they moved to London I think he'd, he'd given it up I know it's a stupid question but what was your sense of what they might have gone on to do because it did, did feel like the energy in that band oh, was, yeah. was quite intense it, it was intense they, they could have easily I mean there's a classic cliche about the difficult second album I don't think they would have had any problems making a second album just in terms of their vitality when we did Stone of the Rude Boys, apart from what I was just saying about Malcolm, the, the band was still a fantastic cohesive unit, but playing really, really well. Uh, when so, was that? Was that the beginning of 1980? Or was it still the end of 79? I'll just have a, I happen to have my database in front of yeah. me, so I can just have a quick look. Uh, February 1980. With, with a lot of the post-punk new wave bands, many of which I was lucky enough to work with, which was very interesting. There was a sort of intellectuality about a lot of the material that they did, either musically or lyrically. And I, that's something that I didn't see a potential for in the Ruts. You know, they, there was something, they were very blue collar, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, 
And so I can't imagine that they would, would have gone in that direction. They wouldn't have gone in a goth direction. That would have been, I think they would have regarded that as a bit pretentious. But I could imagine them doing something like London Calling. Oh, yeah. You know, that, yeah. that sort so. of mix of sort of slight rootsy stuff and then and, and, and punk energy, but slightly more opened out, if you like. Yeah, yes. absolutely. Well, yes, I mean, those two, those two aspects you mentioned, but also socio-political lyrics. I mean, they, you know, they'd established that on the first album with Jar Wars in particular, uh, the riots in West London. Yeah. Um, and, and the police... The, um, the SPG, uh, there was a particular branch of the police which was notorious for beating people up. Yeah, the SPG. Would, would, yeah. Um, it was the, the South Hall... Um, South Hall riots, Blair yeah. Beach. Yeah, they were, and they were all from South. So they were very much part of that. They, were, they had a lot in common with The Clash in a lot of ways, like that, although musically quite different. What has that record kind of meant to you over, over the years? Has it, have people referenced it to you that you've worked with subsequently? Yes, yeah, it's it's one of the records I'm happiest to have worked on, I guess, um, and people have referenced it, and I think it's a it's a really strong album, great material, and their delivery is fantastic, and the whole commitment to it. I mean, their their commitment to what they were doing comes across really strongly, and so it's been a reference for lots of people. So yeah, it's been mentioned a number of times. Did it have an immediate effect though? Did you get work out of it straight away? I think probably that alongside some of the other successful records that I did for Virgin, like the Skids, would have, would have created a general sort of sense of he knows what he's doing in the studio. Hmm. Well, I mean, I, I know that when your name came up for furniture that we looked at your list and thought, crikey, this guy's... <laughs> <laughs> you know, to go from uh, the, the, the ruts to, um, to Van Morrison and Frank Zappa and, and, and yeah. all the other bits and pieces that you've done. Uh, it, was a, um, it was a nicely eclectic thing and, and you didn't seem to put your imprint on, on, onto things particularly. Right, right. Um, right. But you were more the kind of producer who's sort of in service to the client. Do you think that's a fair appraisal? Well, every every project is different. Every relationship is different for a start. Yeah. Um, although I, I agree with that. I, I think um, that's essentially what you know, the producer is hired to work for for the client. If you want a new house building, you get an architect, and whether that house is a product solely of the architect's imagination or or your complete specification is a variable thing. Yeah. So that, that happens when you're making records, I think. Yeah, I don't want to generalise, because this eclecticism thing is... is quite relevant for me because I've always had a, a very wide musical taste. Being a staff engineer and having to work on whatever came through the door instills in you a sense of versatility. The sessions were 10 till 1, three hour sessions, 10 till 1, 2 till 5, 7 till 10. And bands would come in in the evening, but in the morning you might be recording strings, in the afternoon you might be recording a rhythm section or something, and then in the evening a band would come in and work till 3 in the morning. So there'd be three completely different sorts of music in one day. And I found that very challenging, very stimulating. That's partly why I ended up producing lots of different sorts of music, because I actually like chopping and changing. It's all music to me anyway, you know, and I probably things fed from one to another. Is there a particular thing that you think you bring to, to all the records that you make? Is there some aspect of what you do that's your signature, if you like? I've, I've never been aware of that and certainly never had that intention to have a signature. I know there are a lot of extremely talented producers and that's what they do and that's great. But no, I've never wanted to be that. 
I like the idea of getting absorbed with a particular project, doing what I thought needed to be done in, in that particular instance. Um, and by definition, having a signature kind of shortens your shelf life, though, doesn't well, it? I think so, yeah, yeah. Being versatile or being eclectic means you are versatile, so you end up being able to work with a greater range of people, I suppose, yeah, by definition. You were quite you was you were quite meticulous during the furniture album about sort of tempering our rougher aspects. Do you like? <laughs> was I? I yeah. don't remember that. Well, I, <laughs> do you like things to be neat and tidy? Is that? That's that's a that's an interesting conversation actually. Personally, I do like things to be neat and tidy some of the time, a lot of the time, but I'm acutely aware of that, and I'm also acutely aware of the necessity to avoid doing that if I'm working on a project. You've got to, you've got to be flexible. You know, you can go into a session, you start working on a song, someone can come up with that, someone in, in the band can throw an idea out which doesn't conform to that idea, that sense I'd had of how the thing should sound. A complete curved ball. And I can go with that. I can go, yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah, and I like being able to do that, and that, that that applies to performance too. I mean, performance is incredibly important, as you know. As a producer, you're you're there to appraise as well as bring something and be positive and, and add added value, as it were, yes. to bring new stuff and take the record further than it would have gone without you. I mean, that's that's an important thing that I I think you could I I would want to do. To use another cliche, you're doing quality control. You're making sure that the performance of that, whatever it is, guitar overdub or that rhythm section performance or that vocal is not only up to scratch, but beyond that, if that's at all possible. I mean, part of what you do as a producer, I think, is to recognise the potential in the musicians and singers that you're working with. Because quite often, and this has happened to me a number of times, actually, where you work on a record, you, you know almost straight away from that rehearsal period that they are capable of more than they are even realising at that point. And so part of what you do is pushing them, encouraging them, should we say, mm. to do more, to work harder, to, do, to achieve more. That might, that might be persuading them to play or sing something that you're, that's an idea of yours, or it might be just a much more general sense of working harder to make this better because you know that they can do it better, even though they don't know themselves. A couple of times I've had a reaction where, where the, when we finished the record and we listened to the mix, it's all sounding great, where someone said, um, you know, I never thought we could sound that good. I really value that as an achievement, to, to have recognised what they're capable of and taken them through it and got them to do it. You know? So yeah. you like to you like to mix your own records as well, don't you? So oh yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. You, you're thinking about that the whole time, are you? You're recording for the mix. Quite often, I've, I've mixed songs in quite a short amount of time because the sounds of the instruments are already there. Uh, they were made while the performance is going on. I don't like the idea of doing a kind of vanilla recording and then shaping that sound later. I want to get that sound immediately while it's being performed. Mm. So if you're successful at doing that, then the mix is easy because it's all been, it's all there. And you've never been one of those producers that sends their stuff off to be mixed by somebody else much then. Do you, have you done that? No, not, no, not really, no. No, I, I, I haven't ever sent it a mix off for someone to do, but there's been the odd occasion where someone else has perhaps remixed a track. <laughs> has taken the tapes out of your hand. Well, <laughs> the record company wasn't happy or something, you know. 
and uh, yeah, t- taking the tapes and giving them to somebody else, but not very often. There must be occasions where you hear somebody's work and uh, another mixer. I mean, back in the day, there'd be somebody like Bob Clearmountain who everybody used, mm. wouldn't there? But there must be mm. occasions where you hear somebody's stuff and go, wow, they're really good. I'd like to have my record mixed by by them one day well maybe it's my ego I, I i yeah there are lots of people whose work i am more impressed with than my own that's always made me think i've got to work harder at my mixes to make them sound as good as those guys as yeah. much as i can you know maybe it's my ego that i wouldn't it would never let me say oh you better do it you know because you'll do a better job than me <laughs> i don't know <laughs> you um, want to finish the job i suppose yeah Going back to the neatness thing, I heard someone mm. um, describe the Van Morrison albums of the 90s as like shaker furniture, sort of shorn of all decoration. Is that him or, or you, or do you think that's... A, uh, do you concur on that? Is that why you like working together? Do you have a similar aesthetic in that way? Ooh. We never discussed aesthetics when it comes to making records. Is that, a, is that a long enough answer? <laughs> <laughs> yes, with Van, is it a question of just recording what's in front of you? Well, I take out the word just. Yeah. In technical terms, it is. But you're doing, under, you're doing it under a very special set of circumstances, which are quite demanding at times, for good reason. It's about spontaneity and energy and getting it when it's fresh. That's what's important. And I was going to say about the neatness thing, when listening to a performance, you want it to be the best. That means technically the best as well as emotionally the best. But sometimes, as a producer, you have to decide where to draw the line. If, if, if someone who's technically challenged as a performer, like a singer, isn't singing in tune very well, and it's something they never do, you've got to decide where that line is. How much out of tuneness are you going to accept for the sake of emotional communication? Because yeah. the more you sing the song, the more that gets lost. So, you know, that's where my neatness has to be held back because my neatness will say, oh, that once that line's still out of tune, can you try and just get it a bit in it? You can, you've got to recognise how far you can go. And every performer is different. Some people can sing a song 40 times and it'll still sound great. Other people, they'll lose it after the first take. Um, yeah. So, Are there, um, there any acts who you'd really like to work with? Let's put it out in the universe. Put it out in the universe. <laughs> Let's ring them up. Um, oh, was, well, is it really left field? And it probably wouldn't work at all. I wouldn't mind working with James Blake. I think he's a particularly creative, original guy. Yeah. But he's kind of, he seems to have it sewn up himself. Actually. It's fairly self-sufficient, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it seems that way. But you never know. You never, you never know. know. He might be crying out for someone. He just hasn't found that person yet, whoever that might be. I'd like to thank Mick for joining us on this episode. And you can find highlights of his long and fruitful career in a playlist on Spotify by searching for Here's One I Made Earlier, Mick Glossop. And if you get a moment, please rate us wherever you find your podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe so that you don't miss our next conversation with the creator of an enduring piece of music. That's all for now. Hope to see you next time. Bye-bye.